Lord, we come before you with cheerful hearts, giving back to you our tithes and our offerings, because we recognize that from your hand we've received these things. Lord, we're so self-sufficient in our own minds that we, we think we accomplish all of this. We forget that it is from your hand that we receive these things, by your power and grace that we have them. And so would you, through this act of worship, change our hearts and make us glad and cheerful givers to give back to you in faith and acknowledging your goodness to us. Faith not only in looking backward that you've uh, saved us, made us your children, but faith looking forward as well, Lord, that you will continue to care for us and bring us safely home. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we are thankful for your word to us. For how would we know who you are and who we are? And in particular, how would we know the way of salvation? How would we know our glorious Savior and all that he has accomplished for us? We thank you for your word. And we know that it is not merely words on pages. Lord, it is your word, all powerful. And it will accomplish all of its purposes. It will not return void. And so we cling to that promise today, that sure oath that you have given us in your word about your word. And we commit ourselves to you now to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I recently watched a a clip, I don't know how it came across my feed, but a clip of a British television game show. And in this clip was the game show host and two final contestants with a large sum of money, and they were each given a device, one that said steal and one that said share. And the host explained to them that if they both chose steal, they would both go home empty-handed. If they both chose share, they would share equally in the sum of money. If one chose share and the other steal, the one who chose share uh, didn't get anything. The one who chose steal got everything. After he explained the instructions, he lets the two contestants talk to each other. And this is what was interesting. They, they have this kind of informal conversation, but the mics are on. You can hear what they're saying. And it's a, it's a middle-aged guy and a younger lady And they both begin, as you you can imagine this, just overwhelming promises. I would never enter my mind not to share the money with you. Of course I'm going to share the money with you. I would never steal the money. The man goes over the top, even swearing. Uh, I couldn't understand. He had kind of a northern English accent, so it sounded more Scottish than than English. I don't know what he was swearing by, but he he was swearing by a lot of things, giving these promises and these oaths that he would share the money. 
But as you can imagine, when the host asked them to reveal what their devices, what their choices were, the man chose to share and the young lady chose to steal. And he hung his head. It, it appeared he was crying. Uh, he never lifted his head until the, the show faded to black. His head hung and he regretted his decision. Well, words are cheap, aren't they? We want to believe each other. We want to hear each other. But can we really trust each other? In the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been looking at, Jesus here is addressing our words, and in particular, the truth. Now, what Jesus has been doing so far and what he'll continue to do in this section is to reinter- uh, correct the misinterpretations. Not really reinterpret, he just explains the law. Over the years, the rabbis had been writing and teaching things that were really a misapplication of the law. They had inserted all kinds of man-made laws and rules. And so Jesus comes and explains all that the law means, just as we have seen with murder, just as we have seen with adultery. Now we see with telling the truth. The Pharisees and the crowds who were with them, many of whom admired their outward righteousness or what seemed like righteousness, thought they were following the letter of the law according to what the rabbis taught. But what the rabbis had done over the years was to kind of cut the, the rules up a little bit, slice them very thinly, so that if you do this just right, this is how you're obeying the law. And of course, just as Jesus had shown, hey, even if you haven't committed the act of adultery, even if you haven't committed the act of murder, if you have been angry in your heart, if you've been lustful in your heart, you are guilty of these sins. And so he's going to do the same way with telling the truth. There were particular problems that were going on in this, uh, at this particular time that Jesus deals with later in Matthew. But I think it's helpful for, us to, uh, helpful for us to kind of peek ahead. We'll eventually get to Matthew 23, but I'm going to jump ahead for just, just a minute to verse 16 there to read this to you. These are the words of Jesus. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it. And by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So what the Pharisees had done through the rabbinical teachings was to say, if you, if you swore by the temple, you didn't have to keep your oath. But if you swore by the gold in the temple, that was particularly holy. Now you had to keep your oath. Well, you can understand then how confusing this was, especially if you weren't an expert in the law. Because if somebody swore to you, if somebody promised to you, if somebody you know, held out their pinky and, and pinky promised you, you just it sounds like they're telling the truth. But the experts in the law, the legalists of the system, had figured out a way for the, where they could lie, where they didn't have to keep the truth, but they could bind you to do so. Well, the point that Jesus makes here in the end is that the breaking of a solemn vow no matter what you swore by, was ultimately against God because he had made all things 
and all things belong to him. He's going to make a similar point in this passage as well. But that's, that's the situation. That is what Jesus is speaking against here in this passage as well. And that is why at the end we read him say quite simply, let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, tell the truth. The problems of cheap oaths apparently continued uh, because we see this in James, the brother of Jesus, writing later a passage that we're probably uh, familiar with. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And so this problem that persisted then is not something that ended then either. It persists even in our own day. We see this all the time. As followers of Christ, our words matter. We'll see in this passage today that it's not fundamentally about making a vow, but telling the truth is much broader. Just as, again, as we've seen with murder and adultery, the application of the law is much broader because he goes after our hearts. What is behind the sinfulness? Our everyday speech, telling the truth, matters. And yet, we don't really think much about it when we exaggerate a little bit, when we leave some things out that maybe might incriminate us or make us look bad, where we stretch the truth or twist the truth or bend the truth or omit the truth. It's become so normal in our culture. It's, I mean, we, we even assign jobs to it. I won't name any of those jobs, but there are jobs that are kind of, that's the business, is kind of figuring out how to take the truth and, you know, get us to buy more stuff. But as followers of Christ, our words matter, should matter, do matter in everyday speech so that we don't go around playing fast and loose with the truth. Of course, we understand the, the ripple effects of playing fast and loose with the truth, of their falsehoods, that they not only go against the law of God, the commandment, particularly the ninth commandment, as we read, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, but we understand this innately because it breaks down trust in our relationships. What happens when someone lies to us? Someone we love in particular, we want to trust them, but it becomes a little harder. And then if that becomes perpetual, it becomes even harder to trust that person. Well, lies shatter lives. Most of us have probably experienced this to some degree or another. I hope what we're beginning to see in going through the Sermon on the Mount is what Jesus is doing is kind of taking us deeper and deeper into the heart of what is behind this, that, that what we see as we work through it is that we've transgressed the law, all of us. Many can say, I've never murdered, yet we've all been angry in our hearts. Many might say, I've never committed adultery, yet we've all lusted in our hearts. Some may say, I've never broken a vow, yet we've all lied and distorted the truth. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, even greater difficulty is found in turning the other cheek and loving our enemies and finally, in this section, the final command of Jesus is this. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you thought you passed any of those other lines, the last one gets us, right? I mean, we know. I mean, if we're really honest, we know that we've done all of these things in our hearts. But, but, but for his audience, even for those who might think and shake their heads, yeah, I've done that, yep, yeah, I've done that, I've conformed to that. Here's the last one. None of you are perfect, but you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we've all transgressed the law. This is what Jesus is beginning to show us in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can nor will anyone ever earn the righteousness required by God. And so part of what we need to experience is the weight of the law. 
We need to feel the heaviness that we have all broken it. And yet, when we do this, then we can glory all the more as we revel in the graciousness and the magnificence of the gospel of Jesus that Christ came to save sinners like you and like me. He is our righteousness and our atonement. He is the one who has forgiven us every time we've lied out and out, every time we've exaggerated, every time we've bent the truth, twisted the truth, omitted the truth for our benefit or out of the fear of others so that in him alone we can be cleansed. So looking now at verse 33, we read the the familiar pattern. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So Jesus takes us back, as he's done in each pattern, to the law, except here he doesn't quote a particular law. He doesn't, for example, quote the ninth commandment, but rather summarizes a number of passages that we see in the Pentateuch. It might, be, it might have included Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Or Numbers 30, verse 2, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall, not, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23.21, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Similar commands are found not only in the Pentateuch, but we see it in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. We see it in the prophets that we are called to keep our vows, to keep our oaths, to tell the truth. And while Jesus doesn't specify his intent exactly, it seems clear that what he is going after is what he addresses in chapter 23 as well. It's this flippant, everyday, you know, uh, somebody questions you and you're like, no, I swear, I swear, you know. And it's that kind of attitude that we're, we're so flippant with the truth that we feel the need to add all this stuff on. But as we know, most all of us know from experience, even when people add that stuff on, they can do it and still lie to your face just like the game show because they need to get something or feel they need to get something or want to get something from you. Now, we've looked at the, uh, the example in chapter 23 where the, the, the legalist had kind of uh, you know, dealt with the, the law, how you could get away with, with swearing or giving an oath and not keep it. We recognize in our own society that people do similar things. Our hearts haven't changed that much. We're, we're, we're basically uh, just, just as capable of sinning in our day as, as they were in theirs. Uh, people add, but I swear, or I swear to God, all of these things in, in various circumstances. Children learn this early on. You know, I cross my heart and hope to die. Uh, pinky swear, you know, I promise I'm telling the truth. Will you give me my toy back? You know, pinky swear. It's, it's, it's just it, from, the, from the playground. We understand this because we don't trust each other. If you've ever watched live police shows, this is anecdotal, but, but if, the, if the suspect comes out of the car saying, I swear to God, I swear to God, they're, I mean, thou protesteth do much. You know, uh, hit dog hollers, right? I mean, almost all the time they're guilty. And yet you see it over and over again because it's this desire not to question me, to trust what I'm saying. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because we know people lie. Because we know we lie. Words are cheap. People will say what they think other people want to hear. People will say what benefits them the most. People will say what gets them out of trouble or they think will get them out of trouble. And people will add to with great 
uh, or lack of care, I should say. But I swear, I promise to get you to believe they're telling the truth. This was the attitude Jesus was going after. People were treating the truth as trivial. Jesus then paraphrases the law. It's, it's, it's helpful to notice how he paraphrases the law, rather, to express both the importance of not breaking it. He says, you shall not swear falsely. And then keeping the law, you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this isn't a complete prohibition of ever taking an oath. And we'll see that later. Just note that for now, what Jesus says in verse 33. So people were making oaths in ways that they felt they had to keep them and in other ways that they felt like they didn't have to keep them. It was a way to make a promise and not be binding. And you can imagine how much this broke down trust in society. If you didn't know the law exactly the way that the rabbis had interpreted it or the way the Pharisees had added to it, you wouldn't know if what the person was swearing by was binding or not. So everybody's looking around, wait, did he swear by Jerusalem or toward Jerusalem? Because that was one of the distinctions. Did he swear by the temple or by the temple's gold? Did you hear? What did he say? Because you're trying to figure out if he's got a, a way to get around, a way to not tell the truth. Reminds of us of our own time, and I'm sure we could quote many politicians' quotes, but I'll just leave it to two. Read my lips. You remember that one? Didn't go so well. Or how about, depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. I mean, we've seen this again and again. This is not something that's just old. Well, Jesus responds in verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, for many of us, our literal Western minds kick in, and we see that this is an absolute prohibition against taking oaths. You take those first seven words, and he says, don't even take an oath, and we think, Wait, I, I have taken oaths. I have made vows. So, you know, were those sinful? Were those wrong? You go before a court. You give testimony. What do you have to do? You have to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What about when we get married? We make vows in church before God. Are those sinful? What about the fact that God himself has sworn? Not once or twice, but again and again, particularly through the giving of the covenants. We might think of how Jesus would later testify under oath before the high priest at his own trial. And if taking an oath was sinful, why had God given instructions about how to take an oath and what was the proper way to take an oath rather than forbidding the taking of oaths at all in the law? Well, the answer to these questions begins with this. And let me tell you, this is good to apply to, to, to all of these examples in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't do to Jesus' words what the Pharisees and the rabbis had done to the law. Talk about it all the time, that little legalist inside of all of us that pops up, that wants to figure out how to slice the pie just right so we can keep the law and then find a way to get around the law. You've got to guard your heart against that. All of our hearts are inclined to do that, every one of us. We are always looking for the loophole. We do this with all matters, whether it's spiritual matters, whether it's driving matters, whether it's the HOA rules, we're always looking for the loophole to get us off the hook. Sometimes we're looking for the loophole to get someone else on the hook. That's a whole other issue. But what Jesus was doing was explaining things that had been uh, legalized, so to speak. And we don't need to do the same thing to his words as that had been done to that. Even if we never made another oath, even if we read those words and we said it was literal and we had to apply it and we never made another oath, 
Would we ever lie again? We know the answer, that the law is incapable of doing in our hearts what only God can do, ultimately save us, but particularly transform us. The law can't do that. So just as Jesus has done with murder and adultery, he now does with falsehood. He says, don't take an oath and then buy these things. He's addressing specifically this flippant oath-taking, this pulling things out, heaven and earth, temple, all of the ways that people would swear. Swear by the Bible. You hear people do that all the time. This would have been included in the list, I'm sure. So the people were teaching, were, were being taught, that if you swore by less holy things, then you didn't have to keep your word. You could swear and lie. That was the gist of it which is exactly what legalism does. Legalism creates a standard by which we can put other people on the hook and let ourselves off of the hook, give us a way around it. That's a good way to check for legalism in your own life, is if legalism, whatever legalistic standard you've got, if it only applies to other people but doesn't really apply to you, or if it applies to people because for you it's not even a temptation, that's a good way to, you know, a good litmus test for is this legalism or not. That's what it does in our hearts. So the correction then that Jesus applies is not through the giving of further law, but simply to explain the law as it is, just as he's done with murder and adultery. He says, you swear by heaven instead of by God, so that you think it's not binding, but heaven is God's throne room. You swear by earth, the things on earth, thinking it isn't profane, but the earth is God's footstool, and all that is in it is made by and belongs to Him. You swear by Jerusalem, thinking it's just a temporal city, but Jerusalem is the place where God has brought His King, where Jesus came uh, in, in the flesh to establish the kingdom. In other words, All of our slyness, all of our trickery, all of our legalistic finagling cannot get us out of the fact that we're lying. Just tell the truth. That's Jesus' point. Just tell the truth. Everything is God's, and therefore He sees all and knows all. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So we should also look at the question about God swearing because we do see this in the Bible where God gives an oath or gives a promise. One example of this is where Peter describes it in a sermon at Pentecost, uh, quoting first the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 16, and this is found in Acts 2. Peter says, quoting the psalm, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will Make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he begins his exposition by saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he has both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." So there, Peter explains to us that God had given an oath to David. One of the many examples, we'll look at others. But why would God ever need to give an oath since he's God? Why would he need to swear? Why would he need to promise? And the answer is is that it is a gracious condescension for our good, not for his. It is because we don't trust. It is because we lie. 
that we benefit from God making an oath, swearing by himself for there is no one greater, as the writer of Hebrews says. Think of the nature of the covenants. We could look at all of them and see how God swears in each of the covenants or promises in each of the covenants to keep them. But think particularly of, of Noah in Genesis 9. God promises to Noah that he would, never, he would make the earth flourish and he would never destroy it by flood again. And then he gives the rainbow. He calls it a reminder, but does God need a reminder? He doesn't need a reminder. It's for our benefit. The rainbow is the sign given to us to remember that God has promised to us. He, we see it also in, the, in kind of the follow-up to the covenant uh, with, given to Abraham when he tests Abraham, calls on him to sacrifice his only son. And after doing so, he says to him, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. So when God swears, then it is not because he cannot be trusted, but rather it is for our benefit that we would trust him. John Stott explains it this way. He says, the purpose of the divine oaths was not to increase his credibility, since God is not a man that he should lie, but to elicit and confirm our faith. The fault which, which made God condescend to this human level lay not in any untrustworthiness of his, but in our unbelief. So it is a good, gracious kindness to us that God would make an oath because he cannot lie. So then returning to the initial question that comes up, what about us? Should we ever take an oath, make a vow, or swear to tell the truth? As I said before, if we only took the seven verses uh, and we just we didn't read the rest of the passage, we might walk away that this is a, a strict prohibition against ever making an oath given by Jesus. But when we read on, we see what he is dealing with. Such a strict prohibition would undo some of the questions we've already answered, particularly about God, particularly about Jesus when he came to earth and testified at the end of his life and other examples. It would also bring into question a passage like Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So what Jesus is explicitly prohibiting is the swearing by all the things that he lists here and by implication anything else. It's this flippant, frivolous swearing of walking around trying to convince people we're telling the truth, not the solemn uh, oaths that we might take in, in, the, in the rare instances of joining the church or when we get married or if you serve in government or these types of things. Jesus goes on to suggest that our telling the truth all the time would negate any need for giving oaths. In other words, if we just told the truth, we wouldn't have to add, but I swear to every statement uh, that comes. So when it comes to submitting to the governing authorities, whether it's giving testimony in court or any other things I mentioned, it is appropriate for us to take the oath. It's not restricted here. The difference is that these acts are solemn, they're infrequent, they're thoughtful. We're not just frivolously or flippantly throwing these out, but we are considering the weight of the oath or should be considering the weight of the oath that we are taking. In verse 36, Jesus adds a further clarification in case we'd ever get such the idea that we, we leave out God from the equation. Now we're going to swear by our own heads. He's like, this, this doesn't work either. Um, you know, and and just in case anyone gets the idea of the whole hair color thing and you're thinking about Clairol in a box or something, that's, that's really misses the whole point, so we're not even going to go there. But the idea that Jesus is, is, is bringing here is that we are not omnipotent. 
And that's exactly what we're implying. This is the heart of the matter when we think we can swear by our own uh, well-being as if we could uh, uh, enforce our own well-being. It might sound noble for a minute that someone would, would say, listen, a curse be brought down on me if I don't keep my word. But it really isn't. And by explaining it this way, Jesus shows what's really there, that it's this desire for power, that you believe our words, my words, that you trust my words, that my words are as weighty as God's words. If someone doubts or even implies they doubt us, our pride wells up inside of us, and we begin calling down all kinds of curses in our hearts, if not in our mouths, against the person that they would believe us. And we might you know, say, but I promise, but I'm telling the truth, but I swear Jesus is saying this is unnecessary. That desire for other people to trust us is linked to our pride. And, and there's, there's a point to which that might be okay. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to be thought of as, as liars. But we have to be really careful when it comes to pride and so many other matters of the heart that we don't get off course because we can easily be allured into being driven by it. We do not hold our lives in our own hands whether it is our heartbeat, whether it is when our hair fall out or when our hair changes color, no matter if we color it or not, or when our minds stop working or whatever is the case, we're we're not omnipotent. And so we shouldn't speak or swear as such. And then Jesus sums it all up in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, just tell the truth. Just speak the truth. Just be truthful. If we do this, we would never need to say, I swear, or I promise. If we wouldn't lie or exaggerate or bend the truth, there wouldn't be the opportunity for someone to ask us, do you promise? Whether it's where we've been after work or uh, you know, on our taxes or in business dealings. Is this, you, know, you go to sell a car, has this car ever been in a wreck? No, I swear. You know? How many of us have found that out <laughs> you know, from the wrong uh, salesperson? And so Christians ought to be known differently. We ought to be truth-tellers, known as truth-tellers, men and women of the truth, so that there are fewer and fewer opportunities for others to doubt us. Now, we know that in this life that doubt will never completely be gone. We live in a fallen world. People sin, they will lie, they will uh, break the truth. But truth-telling is to be a hallmark of Christians in their lives and a sign of God's grace in their growth. Remember the words of James, let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. Jesus then says, anything more than this comes from evil, or your translation may say the evil one. Now, we recognize that it's evil because it goes against law, God's law. We, we think of the references that we read earlier, or the ninth commandment, that we're, we're to tell the truth. We understand that. But I think even unbelievers recognize that evil or, or that lies are evil. They may not think that lying is evil when they're doing it, but no one wants to be lied to. Because what happens when you're lied to? You're made the fool. You're duped. If you act on deception where someone else has deceived you, you may make a decision that proves foolish because you thought it was true and it was actually a lie. So we understand that lies destroy lives. We want to be told the truth. We may not always want to tell the truth, but we want to be told the truth and we may suffer from it when people deceive us. The other, word, the other thing to note here is the word evil. It's also translated the evil one. It points to Satan, who is the father of lies. He's the great deceiver, the great tempter. He not only leads us in doubting God's word, he leads us to follow in his pattern of deception. 
And so we must be on guard against this allurement to play fast and loose with the truth. And instead, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. One author wrote, Oaths arise because men are so often liars. Oaths arise because men are so often liars. Another one said, Swearing is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Swearing is a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Well, as Jesus unfolds the law here before our eyes in this sermon, we become increasingly unaware, or aware rather, of our inability to keep it. You know, as he's working down, again, you know, you start off with, with murder. Everybody's like, I've never murdered, you know. Adultery, at least I haven't been caught, you know. Uh, lying, ooh, now we're starting to feel the weight of it. And wait, there's more. <laughs> uh, he's going to continue. Why? Because we need to know that we've broken the law. And it is a strange grace that we must first see how miserable we are as sinners. If you think of some of the hymns that we spoke this, or sang this morning, um, you know, it, it's helpful at times to glance down when we sing hymns and look at the source. Sometimes for me, it's the date. You know, not that old hymns are, all old hymns are good hymns, but sometimes just knowing that believers have been singing this hymn for 300 years, it just makes a difference to me. It just strikes me as this is one that's lasted. This is one of the good ones. Another one is many of our hymns, as we, one of the ones we sang this morning, are from the Psalms. They're from out of the Psalter. And knowing that this is, you know, God's word put to music, uh, you know, reimagined so that it's singable, but it's a reflection of what God's word says, changes the way that I think about it when I sing it. And knowing our misery as sinners, knowing how wretched we are, is a strange grace that we must first come to see that we have not met God's holy standard so that we fall on our faces in need of his mercy. That's where we all have to come. All of us have to come there, and it's not just at salvation. We need to be ready daily to come before the Word of God and see that we have failed to measure up again and again. If you've walked with the Lord for a long time, you may go through periods of time where you don't experience new conviction of sin. It can happen, but it shouldn't be the norm. Think about reading, if you've never read the Reformers or the Puritans, one of the things that's always striking was just how much they had to talk about their own wretchedness. I mean, it can almost sound like, this is kind of sick. But they, <clears throat> they grasped how dark and how sinful their hearts were so that they might then see how glorious the gospel is. And that's exactly more significantly what happens as we look into the mirror of God's word, that we might look into the mirror of God's word and allow it to reflect and cause us to see our own sinfulness. This is what Jesus is doing through this sermon, working deeper and deeper that we might see that we're far worse sinners than we ever imagined. And then it's as if he adds, but wait, there's more. This isn't some kind of sick torture. It is a kindness in the same way that a doctor who treats us for cancer keeps cutting until they get clear margins. If a doctor were cutting on you, and then said, oh, there's a little more cancer. I just don't want to cut them anymore. I've cut them so much. It's going to leave an awful scar. I'm just going to sew them back up. How horrid would that be? It is a great kindness that he or she keeps cutting to get clear margins so that we're, the cancer's gone. We want to eradicate it. And similarly, the sanctifying work of the Spirit is revealing more and more 
the depths of our sin. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Maybe that's a strange verse to quote. That verse is usually quoted in other contexts. But it speaks to what the Spirit is doing in transforming us. Part of His transformative work is convicting us of our sin. But the end, pay attention now, the end is not just that we see how wretched we are, but how glorious our Savior is. If you realize the weight of your sin and you have yet to receive the freedom of forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, then hear the good news that in Jesus all of your sins can be cleansed. Salvation is the free gift of His grace given to us and received by faith in His mercy. Quite simply, we are called to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus has died to forgive us of our sins. All of us have been angry. All of us have had lustful thoughts in our hearts. All of us have lied to others. We all stand guilty. There's no way that we can atone for this problem. No way we can fix it ourselves. No one can. No amount of good works, no amount of good efforts, no amount of good tries will overcome what we have done in our sin. We need a Savior. And the only Savior is Jesus. For you who have believed and have been forgiven... Give thanks. Give thanks for what you have been delivered from. Not only what you have been delivered from, but what you are being delivered from. For the work that God is doing in you according to the gospel. That not only have you been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of light, but he continues to pour out his grace upon you in sanctification. The work's not done. He continues to graciously work in each of our hearts. Give thanks for the regular conviction of sin, what is hopefully the regular conviction of sin, the uprooting of our lying hearts and other ways that we sin. Because we not only lie to others, but we lie to ourselves and about ourselves as we saw in in, uh, Jeremiah that the heart is, 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 is sick. It's wretchedly wicked. It's deceptive. It fools us. We might think at times we are righteous or like the Pharisees that they were keeping the law because they swore by just the right thing when they made an oath. Give thanks for the work that God is doing and peeling back the layers for us to see our sinfulness. And when we give thanks then and we walk in the newness of life that has been granted to us, may we speak the truth in love. May we not live for the praise of men, but for the praise of God alone. May our words be gracious, wise, and a healing balm for all to whom we would speak. And may whatever we do in word or in deed, may everything be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we do not tell the truth. Our hearts are deceptive. We lie about ourselves, we lie to ourselves, and we certainly lie to others. And we ask for your forgiveness. Would you make us people of the truth, not because of any great moral courage or any uprightness in our own heart, but because of the grace that has been poured out to us in Christ Jesus in atoning for our sins and being credited with his righteousness, but also, Lord, according to the Spirit's ongoing work, that you are transforming us from one glory to another. You are changing us into the image of Jesus. Lord, may from that flow truthful tongues, 
Lord, help us to see all of the ways that we don't live according to the truth. Lying can be so subtle at times. Would you help us to see this, that we might put to death the sin of lying? May we not be flippant with the truth or play fast and loose with it, but may we understand the significance of speaking the truth and yet doing so in love as we've been called to. Not using the truth like a weapon, not trying to wound people with the truth, but being kind and gentle, being ready to forgive as we've been forgiven. Lord, we thank you for this gracious work in our lives. We pray that you would continue to do it for your namesake, for your glory, we pray in Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.